We're in God's Word. Uh, this morning, as always, Mark chapter 5, if you have a Bible with you, Mark chapter 5. But let's pray as we come to his Word this morning. And God, I am so aware as I come to your Word this morning that without your Spirit, without your power, um, it's just my empty words. But Lord, your Word is God-breathed. It is Spirit-inspired. It is infallible. And so, God, your word, when it goes forward in the power of your spirit, has the power to transform, to change, to convict, to convert, to release and to bring freedom. And so, God, I I stand under your word today. We stand under your word as a church. We do not uh, try to manipulate your word. We do not try to change it. But, Lord, we submit to the authority of your word and we ask that your spirit would come now and speak to us. Holy Spirit, come and Touch our hearts. Speak to our deepest needs. Help me as I preach. Give me clarity, conviction, compassion, and authority. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I find myself reading, I love the BBC News website, and uh, very often I, I'll be reading different articles, and I'll be thinking that'll preach someday, or that'll be a good illustration. So I store up, and, and my iPad, I've got a, an Evernote, and I have a file called Sermon Illustrations, and, and I store things away. And, and as I came to prepare today, I found this one from uh, 22nd of May, just passed, so uh, what, four months ago, three months ago. And uh, the, the title was this on the BBC News website, New York Parents Sue 30-Year-Old Son Who Refuses to Move Out. This is the story. The parents of a 30-year-old man have, restor- have resorted to drastic measures in an effort to get their son to fly the coop. They are suing him. Court documents say Michael Rotondo does not pay rent or help with chores and has ignored his parents' offers of money to get him settled. Despite doling out five conviction letters, Christina and Mark Rotondo say their son still refuses to move out. Michael is arguing that legally he has not given enough he has not been given enough notice to leave. Mr and Mrs. Rotondo filed their case in the Supreme Court after months of unsuccessfully urging their son to leave. Their would be empty nester's lawyer told the Syracuse.com that the couple didn't know how else to get their adult son out of the house. And this is a we have decided that you must leave this house immediately reads the first letter on the second of February. When Michael ignored this letter, his parents wrote a proper eviction notice with the help of their lawyer. You're hereby evicted. A legal enforcement procedure will be instituted immediately if you do not leave by the 15th of March 2018. The couple then offered their son $1,100, which is £819 according to the BBC, to move out, according, along with some sharp commentary about his behaviour, I can imagine. Um, there are great jobs available, even for those with a poor work history like you. Get one. You have to work, they said. Um, by the 30th of March, however, it was becoming clear that their son had no intention of leaving. So in April, they went to their local town court, but they were told that because Michael is family, they would need a Supreme Court justice to send him packing officially. The Rotondo family will take their case to the Supreme Court later this month, some weeks ahead of Michael's 31st birthday. Some of you parents are thinking about your kids right now who haven't left home, you know. There's that thing they talk about when kids go off to university called empty, empty nest syndrome or parents grieve. And then 10 years later, if the child's still there, there's a different kind of grieving. It's like, get out, get a job, get your own home. Uh, we don't want you anymore. And if you're 30 and you're here and you're living at home, I don't mean you, obviously. I mean every other one of your friends who are still living at home. Home, But once you have given somebody access, once you've given them a place in your territory, in your house, it's very hard sometimes to get rid of them. 
Once you, uh, some of you I'm sure have heard of squatters and people who move and squatters can be notoriously difficult to get rid of because they have access to the property. Once you have given over access to a territory, it can be very difficult to get it back. We had uh, friends in Dublin, uh, dear godly friends, who, who rented a house in, in Dublin to what seemed like a very lovely normal family until the police or the Garda called them one night and they found out that their lovely apartment was being used as a brothel. And uh, yeah, imagine finding that out. Apparently it wasn't the first time it had happened to them twice, actually. But this lovely couple arrive, they get the keys for the house and then when they're in the house they do evil and sinful stuff in the house and it's very hard to get rid of them because they have a right, they believe, to the territory. And so sometimes there can be a battle to take back territory that is rightfully yours, to possess your possessions. And it's the same spiritually. The spiritual life is a battle for territory. God created us, men and women, to rule here on earth as his subordinates as his people, to take dominion, to take authority, and to create the earth as he wanted to be, to cultivate it. That's the first thing he did when he created Adam and Eve. He gave us authority over the earth, but what did we do? We came into agreement with the enemy, and therefore we gave him authority on the earth to come and work through individuals. We gave him territory that was rightfully God because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In other words, he created it. He has ownership of it. But when Adam and Eve came into agreement with the enemy, they allowed him to become a squatter, if you like. They gave him place. They gave him space. And that is why in the earth today we have so many problems. We have disorder and disease and despair and death. It was never meant to be like that. But with the coming of Jesus, with his sinless life, with his sacrificial death, with his glorious resurrection, Satan's power has been defeated and one day it is going to be completely destroyed and he will be permanently evicted and eradicated from the territory of earth. That is the good news, that with Christ coming and with his second coming, Jesus or, or Satan has been defeated and ultimately he is going to be destroyed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus on a throne where he will reign supreme in all authority. And when Jesus came to earth the first time 2,000 years ago, we began to see something of this. The miracles of Jesus were not just for showing off. They were signs. John's gospel constantly tells us they were signs. And signs point to something else beyond themselves. And the miracles of Jesus and the healings of Jesus and the deliverance of Jesus were intended to show us what it looks like when God's rule and reign is in place. And as we come to these few chapters in Mark, we're going to look at Mark 5, but just in these few chapters I've realized that we see little glimpses of what it looks like when Jesus' authority comes on earth. Mark chapter 4, we have the storm. I've preached on it before the other side. I'm going to mention it in a minute or two. But that Jesus calms a storm. That was not just so that the disciples could get a bit of kip. That was Jesus showing his absolute authority over creation because he is the author of creation. And therefore, when he speaks, all creation is subject to his voice. 
The waves that are over their head were under his feet because he is the Lord of all creation. That is what he was showing. And one day all creation will be subject again to Christ. And then we get to Mark 5 and we're going to look in a minute about how demons were subject to Christ. That evil and demons and Satan and hell are completely subject to Christ. And then if you look down the next bit of Mark 5, it is entitled in your Bible, A Dead Girl and a Sick Woman. Where Jesus is going to heal uh, Jairus' daughter and on the way there's the woman with the issue of blood. So we've had Jesus as the Lord of creation. We've had Jesus as the Lord of demons and hell. We've had Jesus as the Lord now of sickness and he's the Lord of death. And we're seeing these pictures throughout Mark's gospel. That Jesus is the son of God who has come to destroy the works of the devil. He is Lord over death. He is Lord over the storms. He is Lord over creation. He is Lord over sickness. And he's Lord over hell. There is nothing that is not under his feet. That is what Mark's gospel is trying to tell us throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. So let's start Let's look at Mark 5, verse 1, and we will then go back just slightly into the passage before that. It says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerizines. So we have a a journey in Mark 5, an arrival point, if you like. They arrive at their destination, but the journey started in Mark 4. You're very familiar with the passage where Jesus says, Let's go over to the other side. And they're going over to the other side of the lake, the other side of Lake Galilee. And this storm comes up, this hurricane gale force uh, storm. And the disciples are terrified while Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. And, uh, and, and, and when it says the other side, it was the physical other side. It was Lake Galilee. It was the other side of the lake, probably about five, six miles across. But it was also the other side culturally. Because the other side of the lake was pagan Gentile territory. And in Northern Ireland we know what that means because we've talked about the other side, haven't we? It's a phrase we used for decades. They're from the other side. So, and we didn't mean that they were from the other side of the street or the other side of town necessarily, though often they were. It meant they were from the other side culturally, politically, religiously. They were different than us. Whatever side of the fence you were on, we talked about the other side. There was us and there was the other side. And in this case, the other side, the disciples and Jesus are Jewish. The other side are Gentile and pagan. So there was a cultural boundary being crossed here. That Jesus is stretching them because so far all of his ministry has been to his own people. And he's stretching them and he's saying, this gospel is not just for us. It is not just for you, me and the other three. It is going to the other side. It is going beyond the places where we are comfortable, the places where we feel at home, the places where that, 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 that they speak our language the, the, the places that, 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 that we grew up in it is going beyond that because Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' gospel cannot be limited to a narrow group of people it is for everyone it is for every religion it is for every culture it is for every background and as a church we need to know that that Jesus' gospel is not just for us it is for every person in Craig Avon Protestant, Catholic Hindu, Muslim, no faith, any faith. Jesus' gospel is broader than white, middle-class, evangelical Protestantism. 
It is bigger than this church. It is bigger than our experience. Jesus' gospel reaches into every community, into every home and every heart and seeks to bring transformation. He crosses boundaries. He goes beyond his own people with the gospel because his radical saving grace is indiscriminate. And our mission is not just to gather here on a Sunday as great as that is and have nice meetings in this room but it is to look beyond this building it is to look to the other side the other side of Craig Avon the other side of Portadown the other side of Tandragee the other side of Armagh the other side of Lurgan the other side of Fort Moira the other side of wherever you are Jesus wants to take his message from this place to the other side so that people would encounter him and be set free you see we're not inviting people to sign up for a new religion or a new church that's not the goal our goal is not to get people into hope church our people is to get people to find hope in jesus christ i don't care if they never join this church i don't care i found out this week one or two people have moved on somewhere else because of family connections to other church and the people who told it to me were probably like a little and i went that's brilliant i don't care my goal is not to build a big church It is to reach a big community with the gospel of Christ. It is to empower people, to see people empowered wherever you go from Monday to Saturday, outside of this place, your family, your workplace, your community, to bring the gospel of Christ, not to build some big structure that we can stand back and pat ourselves in the back and be really proud. Look at our church, it's bigger than the other church. No, yes, we want, we are going to be a big church. I know that. God is multiplying us. He's grown us up about 100% in a year. He is moving among us, but that is not the ultimate goal because you can have a big church that makes absolutely no impact on a community anyone can put on a decent show and gather a crowd we are not about entertainment we are not about putting on the best show in town in case you hadn't noticed we're not that slick you shouldn't have laughed that much we are not super slick and organized in every way. We're not. And neither do we ever want to be. Yes, we want to do things honorably and professionally to the glory of God. But we never want to be so slick that it feels fake and false. This is about Jesus and his kingdom and his glory and the people around us who are getting up this morning, who are hopeless, who have nowhere to turn and don't know that there's a Jesus who loves them, who died for them and who is reaching out to them because they feel too far away from him and we're going to find a man today who felt that. So the other side is physical, it's cultural. But you know what, in this case the other side is also spiritual because... This just came to me this morning. Actually, when people talk about contacting the supernatural or the other realm, what do they say? We're we're making contact with the other side. There's a spiritual element to this. When people try to contact the dead or whatever, whatever form that takes, or fortune tellers or seances or Ouija boards, whatever, they're trying to connect with the other side. And in this case, the other side is not just physical it's not just cultural it is also spiritual they're literally going into enemy territory territory that is controlled by evil because the bible teaches and this is a whole other teaching that we'll get into some other time but there's the physical visible world that we see all around us but there's also an invisible spiritual world 
that we can't see. Right now around you there is a whole other world that you can't see. An invisible spirit. In fact, it was here first. In the beginning, God created the heavens. Not heaven. Heavens. There's different dimensions. And the earth. So everything that we see that's visible and tangible came from the invisible. It was there first. And it is still influencing what we do. It is influencing things that happen on earth. So there is an invisible spiritual realm all around us. Just like right now, there are phone waves all around us. That's how we can, if you're sitting on your phone, don't do it. But you can pick up a signal. You can't see the signal. There are radio waves all around us. If you switch on radio and tune, there are things all around us that we can't see. And in the same way, there are spiritual, uh, there's a spiritual invisible realm all around us. In the Old Testament, Elisha said about his servant, opened his eye, open his eyes, and he opens them, and, he, and God opens his eyes, and he sees the invisible spiritual realm. So we need to know that as well as the physical realm, there is a spiritual dimension to life. And that's what the disciples are going to be confronted with on the other side. So they started on their way across, and as we know, a storm comes up. And often when you step out in faith and obedience and try to go to the other side of where Jesus has called you to do, all of hell will come against you. Anybody ever find that? When you take a step of faith, when you start a new venture, when you determine to stop certain things and go all in for Jesus, when you determine that, 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 that I'm no longer going to be lukewarm, wishy-washy, half-hearted, I'm all out for Jesus, sometimes it feels like all hell comes against you. When you start to push into new territory, to reach into new communities, to share your faith, to say I'm no longer going to sit in the fence, but I'm going to be vocal, I'm going to be uh, demonstrative in my faith for Jesus, it seems like there's resistance. And that's what we see here. Jesus is going to the other side and there's a storm that comes against him because not everything just happens in life. You see, this storm, you could have just said, well, it's just a storm. I mean, it's like Galilee, storms happen. And I think so many times as Christians, we are Kesarah, Sarah, whatever will be, the Lord's sovereign, it doesn't matter what happens because he's causing it. No, I don't believe that. I do believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, but I believe in the sovereignty of God that he has given us a huge amount of free will and delegated a huge amount of authority and responsibility to us. And the reason I know that this storm was not from God is because Jesus rebuked it. If it was from God, Jesus would be rebuking the Father. So not every storm that comes into your life was sent by God. You need to know that. Because some of us, when we come under oppression, when we come under sickness, when we come under affliction, we just go, well, it must be the Lord's will and I'll just lie down and take it passively. Do you know it's a battle? Do you know it's a fight for territory? Do you know that, that, that sometimes, yes, stuff does just happen and sickness does just happen. Sometimes it's your own stupid decisions that got you into storms. I've been there. Half the storms in my life, the enemy has had his feet up on his lazy boy recliner. He hasn't had to do anything because I've made a big enough mess of it myself. He's having a day off. And then there are storms that the enemy is responsible for. And that's how we, what we need to determine. We need to know the source of our storm. Because if you think that the storm is caused by God, you will not resist that storm. <laughs> if you think sickness in your life is caused by God, why would you pray to be healed? 
If you think your family breaking up is God's will, why would you pray for reconciliation? If you think debt is caused by God in your life, why would you pray for him to restore blessing and favor to you and your finances? Not every sickness, not every storm is caused by God. Sometimes they pass through his hand, but sometimes, if not often, I believe it's the enemy coming against us, but we're so passive, we're so lazy, we're so predisposed to just be in case Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be, if the Lord wills it, it'll happen, that we actually don't fight and resist it. And Jesus here knew this storm was not from the Father, and so he rebukes it. Both God and the enemy seek to work through people, but for different purposes. When you become a Christian, you surrender to Christ, and his Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you, and you represent him. But the enemy's also trying to get access into lives, into territories, into cultures, into churches. The enemy's still trying, always trying to gain access into different places, to influence territory. I saw this starkly a number of years ago. My best friend in school, if you were to look at my, my photographs from P1 right through to P7 in Mullington Primary School, I have the same person sitting beside me. I'll not say his surname, but his first name was Jason. And Jason was my best friend the whole way through school. Lovely, lovely guy. Seemed to have everything going for him. So you can imagine how shocked I was when on the 7th of March 2010, this was a headline in, in one of the Northern Ireland press. Occult funeral for a drug addict killed in ritual. A pagan rocker died in his drug den farmhouse after a witchcraft witch ritual went nightmarishly wrong. Junkie Jason, who worked in the Tato Castle food lab, was found slumped at his isolated home in Tandragee, County Armagh, a fortnight ago. His body was surrounded by occult symbols and his sprawling 60-acre property housed a massive opium and cannabis lab. Sunday life can reveal that ponytailed guitarist Jason, 34, was a priest in a satanic sect founded by occultist Alistair Crowley. Some locals have dubbed Jason the Devil's Dealer as he is suspected of having been a supplier to addicts and drug dealers across Northern Ireland. Who would have thought? And it just, it was that moment of reflection, there was no hint of arrogance because I'm so aware for the grace of God. But just the two different paths that him and I took, two best friends the whole way through school, and one became a priest of Satan and one became a follower of Jesus. I don't think Jason in P5 ever said to me, I want to be a devil worshipper. <laughs> I don't think in P7 he ever said, I want to die doing some satanic ritual. But over time, the enemy gained a foothold in his life. And as we see later, that foothold becomes a stronghold. You see, Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. That's his only modus operandi. That's it. He has no other goal for your life. Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And so when people come to me and say, I don't know if this is God or Satan in my life doing this, you know what I say? Is it stealing from you? Is it killing from you? Is it destroying from you? 
If it's yes, it's not God. Is it bringing life? It's Jesus. That's not that complicated. Anything that steals, kills, or destroys anything from you is not God. But if it brings life, it's Jesus. And this man that we're going to encounter had had so much stolen from him. He was being killed and he was being destroyed. We don't know what he did, but we're told in Mark 2. Let's read about him. When Jesus got off the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what he did, but we know Jesus gets off the boat at the other side and it's probably early morning because they've been going through the night through the storm and this is his welcoming party. You can imagine the disciples, you know, they've left a crowd on the other side, a huge crowd, and they're going across, they're probably like, the crowds were big there, wait, you see them here, Jesus, this is great, you know, wait, you see the massive crowds, the popularity, and they get across, and this crazy guy runs out of the tombs. It says he lived in the tombs, that was a grave. Jesus was buried in a tomb. He lived in a graveyard. Not only that, it tells us in one of the other Gospels he was naked, Not a pleasant sight first thing in the morning probably. It tells us in one of the other Gospels that he was so violent. You can look in Matthew 8 and Mark 8 are the two two passages. He was so violent that people wouldn't pass that way. He lived outside the community. He was isolated and ostracized. He had been chained. The word here is the same word that they used to try and tame animals. He was treated like an animal and yet supernaturally he had strength. You see that sometimes, don't you? And I've heard about that when people have delivered like, like little ladies from demons and they throw three guys across the room. There's a supernatural strength there. He cut himself with stones. In other words, he self-harmed. We don't know if he was self-harming because the demons were trying to kill him or he was trying to release something from But But we live in a world where people self-harm. We live in a world where people are so so full of anxiety and hopelessness that they feel that the only way they can find release and relief is to cut their skin. I've met many of them over the years. I remember a lady in Lurgan who showed me the scars on her arms. And she had scars the whole way up her arms. And she said, you know what happened last week? She said, Craig, I was in Lisburn. And I covered them all over. And she said, I'd I'd just self-harmed the day before. This was a woman in probably her 50s. And she said, I was walking down the the mall in in Lisburn, and and a man I'd never met before came up to me. And he stopped me. And he just pulled up the sleeves on my arms. And he looked at the scars. And he looked me in the eye. And he said, you're worth more than this. And off he walked. I thought, what a powerful, beautiful story. Where God sends some stranger along just to remind a woman who feels like her life is so worthless that she cuts herself that she's worth more than that. And this man was cutting himself. His life was controlled and destroyed by evil. And yet this man was the one reason that Jesus crossed the lake in the storm. This crazy demon-possessed man who was so demonized that even his demons had demons had demons. 
He was so loved by Jesus that Jesus crossed the lake in a storm in the middle of the night just to get to him. How do we know that? Because as soon as Jesus delivers him, what does he do? He goes right back to the other side. This man is so significant and important to Jesus because Jesus cares about the individual. Jesus cares about the individual. We see it again and again with the leper, with the woman caught in adultery, with Zacchaeus. Tells parables about one lost sheep, one lost coin. Jesus cares about the individual. I want to say to you this morning that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus cares about you. And this, picture, this shows us that there is nobody outside of the grace of God. I mean, you might think, well, you don't know what I've done, Craig. I want to say to you that you're probably not as bad as this guy. Like, no matter what you've done, you probably haven't done what this guy did. Because we realize later that he's got thousands of demons. That there is no life that cannot be restored. There's no soul that can't be saved. There's no heart that can't be transformed. Because nobody has ever gone too far. So look at verses 68. We're nearly done. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. So, this is strange. We have this crazy demon-possessed man. He sees Jesus just getting off the boat from a distance and he runs towards him and falls on his feet or on his knees. The Greek word is proskeo, which means worship. He falls on his feet in a posture and position of worship and yet his words are demonic. He is controlled by demons. He recognizes who Jesus is. He calls him the son of the most high God because even the demons in hell know who Jesus is. But he falls in worship. If this man was so possessed by demons that he didn't, that the demons didn't want to leave, why did he run towards Jesus? Because it was obvious what was going to happen. And what I've come to say is this, the beautiful, powerful, pure, magnetic pull of Jesus to that lost man was stronger than the demons in hell that were trying to keep him back from Jesus. That's the only solution I could come to. I read different commentaries and none of them were satisfactory. The pure, beautiful presence of Jesus, the magnetic presence of Jesus was stronger to pull this man towards him than the demons of hell were to keep him back from Jesus. So we have this situation that I call conflicted worship. One part of him is worshipping Jesus and longing for Jesus, while another part of him is trying to pull him away from Jesus and longing for something else. And let's be honest, we all experience conflicted worship at times. We come into church some Sundays and we sing the songs and we mean the words. And we raise our hands. And our hearts are drawn towards Jesus. And we earnestly desire Jesus. But if we're really honest, our hearts are also pulled in other directions. Sometimes by things that aren't so good. We love Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to worship him. And yet there's something that has drawn our hearts away from him. Or sometimes the conflict comes because our lives are not in line with what we're singing. Those of you who had a huge fight on the way to church in the car, then you come in here and it's all praise God, hallelujah. And you feel conflicted in worship sometimes. 
Those of you who were sitting up looking at things on the internet at 2 o'clock this morning that you shouldn't have been looking at, you come into worship this morning and you feel conflicted because you know that what you're singing is true, but your heart is not pure. And you know what? We all go through that conflicted worship at times. You've had a huge fight in work. You've said things this week that you shouldn't say to people in work. You feel like the worst witness of test, or testimony ever. And you come in here and you're weighed down with guilt and shame and regret. And you're thinking, I'm singing these songs and I believe them to be true because I know they're true. And yet I feel so unworthy to sing them. I, I felt like that. I remember one particular Sunday, probably about four years ago in Dublin, on the Saturday, we had had one of our humdinger arguments. I know it's very hard for you to believe. It's the only one we've had in four years. But we had one of those arguments. Like, we honestly, we, I mean, every couple has the odd niggle and fight. We had one of those, you know, the biggies. Like the real biggies. Like the real ones that, that, that are the cause of your wife. Um, there's going to be another one this afternoon. Um, no, we had. It was one of those ones where... I raised my voice, I stormed out of the house, I got into the car, I drove about two miles and went, I have nowhere to go. (laughs) I'm driving around Dublin and I'm like, I have nowhere actually to go right now. So I just had to come back with my tail between my legs again. But I came back and, and normally we would reconcile fairly quickly and just deal with it, but that day we didn't. The Bible says don't let the sun go down in your anger. We just fought through the night, you know. And, 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 and so we went to church the next morning. And it was funny because I'm sitting there and there's two people sitting between us and then there's Becky here. Like, there's like this buffer zone of war between us. And as I'm worshipping, I'm worshipping with my hands in the air and I'm hearing this voice in my head. Who do you think you are? You're such a hypocrite. Here you are standing here, worshipping God with your hands in the air at the front of this church. And these people have no idea the fight you just had with your wife and the way you raised your voice to her yesterday and the way you treated her and the disrespect you showed her. How dare you worship God like that? And I was deeply convicted for a moment. But then I felt the Holy Spirit say this. If you were singing songs about yourself, that would be true. If you were worshipping Craig, that would be true. But no matter what you have done or what you have said to your wife, the songs that you are singing about Jesus are still just as true as if you had never sinned in your entire life. The truth about God is the truth about God no matter who you are or what you've done. It is not about your standing. It is about his holiness. It's about his glory. It's about his perfection. It's about his righteousness. He is God and he's on the throne whether you've had a brilliant week or a rubbish week. Whether you've been the biggest sinner or the biggest saint. He is still seated on the throne. And yes, we don't want to be a bunch of hypocrites. But we worship not because of who we are but because of who he is. And that's why I love the worship in this church and I've loved it today. It has been so God-centered. I don't want to sing about me in church. Singing about me only depresses me. Like I think about, I've said this before, I think about myself enough. When I come into church, I want to sing about him. I want to declare his glory, his work, his acts, his majesty, his authority, his power. And so the man's in this posture of worship and the demons are calling out, through him and look at what 
We read 9 to 13. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name. I was going to do a demon voice. My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. <laughs> Did you like that? That'll be the only time. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. I heard a large herd of pigs were feeding. That's how you know it was Gentile territory in the nearby hillside because the Jews didn't keep pigs. The demons begged Jesus, send us out among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure pure spirit came out and went into the pigs. So Jesus says to the man, what's your name? And the man says, I am Legion. Legion was a, 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 a number for Roman soldiers. 6,000 Roman soldiers were called a legion. Now, I don't know if he had 6,000 demons in him, but there was a lot, because they went into 2,000 pigs. So whatever this man had done, it was pretty bad. The demons had taken significant territory in his life. But here's the bit I want you to see. The demons' only concern was to remain in the territory. Look at what it says. They begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. The demons begged Jesus send us among the pigs in other words we don't care about the man all we care about is the territory this man is just nothing to us Jesus cared about the man he crossed the lake to get to the man the demons don't care about the man all they care about is the influence and territory they said we don't care if you cast us out of him as long as we stay in the region because we through this man have established a foothold in this territory that we don't want to let go of because when the enemy gets a foothold in territory he doesn't let it go without a fight some of you have seen that not only in the world some of you have seen that in a church that when the enemy gets a foothold in a place he doesn't let it go without a fight And so they beg him, let us stay here, because they were using this man to infiltrate and influence the territory. And we see it in the world today, that the impact and influence of individuals upon communities, cities, even nations, depends on who they bow their knee to. When the leader of a nation, when the leader of a community, when the leader of a family bows his knee to Jesus, that impacts the territory. And when they bow their knee to something or someone else, that impacts the territory. And we all have a territory, often more than we realize. Do you know you've got a territory? You have a sphere of influence, your family. All, all the people you interact with this week, that's your territory. Your family, your relationships, your job, your sports clubs, your church, your community, your school. You have a territory, and I want to say to you there's a battle for that territory. Most of the battles are for territory. We know this in Northern Ireland. The battle was never about religion in Northern Ireland. That was just a label. It was about territory. That's why we paint curbstones and put up flags. We're marking out territory. The battle in the Middle East is not about religion. It's about territory. Ultimately, it's about who owns certain land. And you have a territory that God has assigned to you. Your life for good or bad will impact the territory around you. This church, Hope Community Church, is called to be a place of hope in this territory. But not just in Craigavon, in Greater Craigavon. How many of you drove more than 10 minutes to get here today? Put up your hand. Look around. This church is called to impact beyond Craigavon. We're called to impact Portadown and beyond. Tandragee, Rich Hill, Moira, Lurgan, 
Lisburn, Guildford, Donna Chloe. This church is based in Craigavon, but we're called to impact a larger territory than just the mile around this church. God has given us a calling and a territory. And if we, along with the other Bible-centered churches in this area, don't do it, then somebody else influences this territory. And how many know Craig Alvin has had another influence for many years? That the demons of hell have had a huge influence in this community for decades. And they're not going to go easily. But once God's kingdom comes in through his people and we begin to advance out into the community, they cannot stay. God has called us here for a reason. I didn't want to choose. None of us really chose Craig Alvin. Craig Alvin kind of chose us. Let's be honest. God placed us here for a purpose and for a reason. And I want us to build a thriving, vibrant church in Craig Alvin, not so that we can have a monument to our greatest greatness, but because Craig Alvin has always been seen as enemy territory. And I want us to be a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden, to say to every demon in hell, you do not have this territory. Jesus is Lord in Craig Alvin. Jesus is Lord in this community. And he is impacting lives and transforming hearts day by day and impacting the whole community. See, if we don't know that we have a territory and take it for Christ, it remains with the enemy. When the enemy has found a place of influence, he doesn't give it up easily. And that's why the Bible says this in Ephesians 4, do not give the devil a foothold. Other translations say, neither give place to the devil. Do not make room for the devil. Because when you give the enemy a foothold, that becomes a stronghold in your life. When you give him a place in your life, you give him an inch and he takes a mile. You ever had anyone like that? You go, I'm not like, if I give them an inch, they take a mile. That's the enemy's of doing things there's good news and the bad news the good news is this isn't about you very often the battles in your life are not about you the storm was not about Jesus it was about the man they were trying to stop Jesus getting to the man and a lot of the battles in your life are not personal I was going to call this you're important you're not important because you're important to God but you're not important to Satan apart from what he can do through you but you are important to God because of who you are. And the enemy doesn't care about you. He cares about what he can influence through you. And so the tension and the friction in your life, the storms around you, might well be a battle for your territory. And so as church, as a people of God, we cannot become passive and lazy. We get tired, folks, but we cannot lie down, give up, or give in. We've got to fight for what's ours. We've got to fight for our territory. Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight. Do you know when it's a good fight? When you win. That's the only good fight I've ever had is when I've won. And some of us fight over stupid and insignificant things and give up on the most important things. And notice here, the devil then tries to negotiate with Jesus. He says, well, well, if I have to leave the man, let me go into the pigs. And Jesus kind of goes along with it, but the enemy sometimes will do that. He'll, if he can't stop you getting to where God wants you to be, he'll try to get you to compromise when you're there. He'll try to get you to water things down and back off, soften things down. 
to compromise your faith, to compromise your morality in the place because he hasn't stopped you getting there. Don't negotiate with the enemy. I love Satan. Jesus calls his bluff. Jesus says, yeah, you can go into the pigs, but then Jesus sends the pigs over the cliff. And they all die. 2,000 little squealy pigs. 2,000 babes. That's a movie, by the way, not 2,000 girls. <laughs> I know I'm going to get emails if I don't. If I don't. <laughs> Jesus purifies and clears the territory. But here's the thing. People could see this man. They could only see his outward appearance. They could see how tormented he was, but they couldn't see the affliction going on inside him. They thought he was just a crazy man who they tried to avoid. And yet they couldn't see the oppression he was under. And the people you meet, sometimes they're hard work. Sometimes they're difficult to be around. Sometimes you want to stay as far away from them as possible. Sometimes they're people that you really probably don't want to come to church. And yet you don't know what's going on inside them. You don't know the oppression they're under. And yet one word from Jesus. One word from Jesus was able to rid this man of thousands of demons. One word from Jesus was more than the power of hell itself. Because there is nothing and nowhere that doesn't bow the knee to the authority of Jesus. I want to finish with a story. I have two or three different things going through my head here, but just about taking territory in your life and in your family. I feel for some of you, you need to take territory in your family right now. You take territory. You you haven't realized that what you're going through is not about you. It's about the territory that you have. We had a lovely family in our church in Dublin, the Slatteries, who had three boys, triplets. But the last one, sadly, was born. In whatever way he was born, he, he came out with um, with autism and epilepsy. He was, what, 12 or so, Rex? Would that be right? Maybe, but yeah, around 12 years old. The triplets were 12. And uh, so you had these two perfectly normal boys and then their triplet brother who was very severely autistic and but of seizures, probably every, it depended, maybe every week or so, maybe every two weeks. And the toll this took in this family was huge, and they hadn't had a holiday in years. And they decided one year, you know what, we're just going to book a holiday. Kieran's been doing all right. That was her son with epilepsy and, and, and autism. So we're going to book a holiday. And they booked a holiday in Italy, and they were so excited about it. And they were due to go out on the Sunday morning, 9 o'clock flight from Dublin. And on Saturday evening, Kieran's dad, Declan, phoned me and said, Craig, we can't go. And I said, what's happened? He said, Kieran has had nine seizures today. He's banged his head. We're at the hospital now. We can't go. And in that moment, something rose up within me and I felt a holy anger. Because I felt like the devil had overplayed his hand. From going from one seizure every week or two to nine in one day, that's not normal. 
And so I felt in that moment that we were to take territory back. And that as his dad, Declan, was the man to do that. Because the enemy world, believe it or not, respects spiritual authority. And as his dad, he had the spiritual authority in that home. And I said, Declan, I'm going to email you something in a minute. I want you to pray this over your son for the next hour, just repeatedly. And I sent him an email, and the prayer was simply this. As Declan's father, I have authority over his life. And anything the enemy tries to do against my son has to go through me. I command every demon in hell, every sickness and every affliction to leave my son's body in the name of Jesus and not return. And I speak complete healing and wholeness. And the enemy shall not have any foothold in my son's life. And anything he sends, as his father, has to go through me. The next morning they got on a flight. They went to Italy. That kid didn't have a seizure for over 10 months. He made more progress in that 10 months than they'd seen in the years before that. All because his father stood in the gap and decided, I'm going to take my territory back. I'm not going to give this territory to the enemy. I'm going to fight for what's mine. I'm not going to lie down. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to take hold of that which God has given me responsibility for. And I know this hasn't been the most uplifting, shouty message this morning, but I really feel like at the start of this new season, there's something for us as a church that we need to be aware that we are not just here to sing nice, happy, clappy songs and have a good laugh at the preacher on a Sunday, okay? But that we're here to take territory. We're here to do business. We're here to do battle. This is not a cruise ship. This is a battleship. We're here to take ground, and yes, we will have fun, and we will have fellowship, and we will have a laugh, and we will have friendship. We will do all the stuff we've done, and we will continue to do it. But I feel like sometimes we just need a reminder at the start of the new season that what this is really about. This is not about us having a nice wee meeting. This is about the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of God. And we are his church, we are his bride, we are his body, and we are uniquely and especially positioned in this place to take territory for his kingdom.